Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send us an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. In this series, Pastor Chad Gilligan talks about things that affect us in our everyday lives. Listen as he teaches us how to live in light of what Christ has done for us in this series called Real Life Stuff. If you have your Bibles, whether you have them in a print or a digital form, I invite you to turn to Psalm 131, the 131st Psalm, and uh, that's where we'll spend most of our time here today, Psalm 131. Uh, It's good to see you this morning. Uh, Last Sunday, I made it back uh, to a hotel in time to join a part of this service in the city of Jerusalem online, and uh, I got to hear, um, I've got a friend named Bill McGinnis who brought an awesome sermon last week, did he not? And uh, it was it was a great uh, great Sunday, and and just want to say thanks. First, I want to say thanks to Calvary's board uh, for giving me the opportunity to go on this trip to Israel. If you don't know, I spent uh, about ten days in the nation of Israel. It's the first time I'd ever been there. It was an incredible trip. Um, I've had more people say to me coming back from that trip than any. I mean, I've I've done quite a few trips over the years. We've done missions trips, different things. I've never had so many people say to me, Pastor, we were praying for you. I, I think some folks were praying, I wouldn't come back, but I'm here. And uh, so, but I can, I can tell you tangibly, we felt people's prayers. It was, uh, it was an extraordinary experience. Do you mind if I take a couple minutes and talk to you about it? You know, sometimes when people are like, you know, the first day of school, you do the presentation, my, what I did on my summer vacation, but uh, um, I'm a, you're stuck right where you are. So I'm going to tell you anyways. And uh, it was an extraordinary trip. Here's a couple of things. Um, It's a trip that I had never been on. Um, I think I had spent my whole life saying, you know, someday I'd like to go. I'm a pastor. I read the Bible. I like God. You know, I think someday I'd like to, I'd like to go. The first day, second stop, I think I said to myself, why did I wait so long to do this? It was just, it was an extraordinary experience. A couple of questions that, that people ask quite a bit. One is, was it dangerous? Like, did you feel unsafe? And I've got to tell you, not one time did we feel like we were in a place or position that was unsafe at all. Um, not, not scared, not, not a thing of terror. Now look, you're, you're traveling internationally, and one of the unique things is we, we pray, and Scripture encourages us to do this, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Have you heard that before? You've seen that in Scripture. And, and, and with good reason why, much of the conflict that we see experienced in the world, Jerusalem or Israel is a microcosm of that. There's ethnic tension, there's racial tension, there's religious tension, there's status, there's social tension. I mean, you've got all those things going on. It's not that you don't go through places where there's checkpoints and, and, and military presence and those kinds of things, but the reality is this. It was very safe. In fact, I've got, just to be quite honest with you, I felt safer there than some other places that I've been in the United States lately. And so it was, it was a great experience. The reason I stress that is because, have you ever noticed that the media loves drama? And if there's any place where you can conjure up some drama, it's Israel. So anytime anything happens in Israel, we get this picture that the whole world has fallen apart when actually we felt very safe. It was an extraordinary experience and, uh, and really enjoyed it. One of the things that was kind of our hope coming out of this trip and, and is definitely something that we're going to move forward with the Lord willing with the intention to do is, is make some plans. And I've had a lot of people ask me this as well. You know, they say, how was your trip? I'll tell them about it. They go, I'm going to go someday. Well, your someday may be 2017. So we're going to try to put together a group from Calvary um, that will go and experience it and maybe even uh, future trips as well. Um, but I just think if, if you can go, 
Um, it is something that you should put on your bucket list and you should move it up sooner rather than later. It was, it was an extraordinary opportunity. And I see some of you already scheming. You're like, what if we sell one of our kids? I think we can go, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so, so, that's, so that's, that's kind of a thought. Here's, here's what we're supposed to do. You know, we're in this series of messages that we're calling Real Life Stuff. And uh, today I'm supposed to be talking out of our schedule. I'm supposed to be talking out of Ephesians chapters four and five about sexual immorality, but I'd rather not. Is that okay? Um, so can I tell you a little bit about my trip and kind of what I experienced? And, uh, and I think, I, I really feel like the Lord wants us to do this today and we'll, we'll get back to uh, Ephesians five next week. But I think there's some real life stuff for us to consider here today as well. So if you don't mind, um, and, and even if you do, I'm gonna show you a couple of pictures, if that's okay. Uh, here's the first one. We had the privilege to travel with a group from the Center for Holy Land Studies. Uh, this is an institute that's been put together by the Assemblies of God. That's the Fellowship of Churches that Calvary belongs to. Uh, Mark Turnage is the guy in the blue jacket and the hat there. And uh, Mark directs it. He has done most of his master's and doctoral studies in the nation of Israel, this guy uh, knows the languages, he knows the people, he knows the social uh, situation, he knows the customs. It was an incredible experience, um, kind of just to sit under his teaching as we went to the different places. First place we went was a place called Caesarea, and uh, this is right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this was a Roman city that was built by the Caesar uh, back uh, about the time of Jesus. In fact, it was this place, Caesarea, where Paul was imprisoned at the end of the book of Acts. And so you may be familiar with that kind of significant. Here's one of the things I want you to get as we look at these pictures. Israel's only about the size of New Jersey. Okay, so it's not, somebody said amen to New Jersey. Um, whatever, sister. And, and so that's kind of this, um, that's the best Jersey accent I got. So, um, but Israel's, Israel's only about the size of New Jersey. But what's significant is all the history, how strategically it's placed as kind of the bridge between Asia and Africa. When you look at trade routes, both today and in the future, or yeah, future, but also in history. But then also, there's so many different, and you'll see this in these pictures, geographic um, climate zones and, and regions that you go through. So you're on the Mediterranean Sea, was beautiful. The, the next stop that we made was this place called Arbel, and uh, this is probably my favorite picture. That was when the sun was setting. None of that's doctored. Um, that's not Jesus behind me. That's my son, Clayton. Um, <laughs> although from a distance, but they're nothing alike. I can tell, well, you know, so not that, not that, but I mean, so here's the deal. Uh, Clayton has done a lot of our video work here at the church in recent days, uh, much of what we had at Christmas Eve, and so he went with this intention so that we could capture some of the things that we saw uh, for the future here at Calvary. So our Easter and Good Friday messages uh, will we'll have a lot of presentation from this trip, and then I'm really excited this summer we're going to do a sermon series on the life of Christ with a lot of information that will show you not just what happened, but where it happened. And I, I just, I think it's really helpful for us as we see this. And so one of the places where we spent quite a bit of time was along the Sea of Galilee, just like Jesus did. That's the sunrise on the Sea of Galilee. And I'm not much to, to brag, but yes, that was out my hotel window. And uh, it was awesome. And then this is also the Sea of Galilee, this next picture here. I know some of these pictures uh, turn out a little bit dark on the screens, but here's what I want you to picture. We don't know the exact site where it happened, but if you were at the feeding of the 5,000, that's basically what you saw. It was on a, on a mountainside overlooking the sea. Uh, it was, it was, it's just a beautiful place. Um, and you get that scenery and a little fish and some bread and you're living large. And so that's, 
a really neat view. This next picture here is uh, in the Jordan River, and I had the privilege to, to be rebaptized in the Jordan River, and then the opportunity to baptize Clayton, which was really cool. Uh, held him under a little longer. It was really cool. <laughs> Um, so you might recognize I'm on the right, Clayton's in the middle, and then the guy on the end is Doug Clay. Anybody ever heard of Doug Clay? He was uh, with us last May. He was our pastor here for years at Calvary, and uh, I like to refer to that picture. He was the host of the trip, and I bring you his greetings. I like to refer to that picture as Father, Son, and Doug Clay, and uh, kind of a, a holy trinity right there. Uh, the next picture that you have is of a place called Masada. Now you see a very different landscape there. This is closer to the desert. In the distance, you can see the Dead Sea. This was up on a, this was a mountain fortress palace that Herod built. And uh, we'll probably touch more on this uh, later this year when we look at some things. The next picture that you have here is uh, of a very holy man in Jerusalem. And uh, not so holy, actually, but uh, just to prove that I was there. That's looking out on the Mount of Olives, from the Mount of Olives, on the city of Jerusalem. Next picture, just kind of give you some insight into what the, the landscape looks like in and around Jerusalem. It's kind of sur surrounded by hills. They build the homes right up on there. And then this next picture, I, I want to just, so that the rest of what we talk about today kind of makes sense, I want to give you just kind of a little bit of a geography lesson. So uh, you'll see, this is, this is looking from the Mount of Olives onto the city of Jerusalem. This is basically what Jesus saw where he stood the night before his crucifixion, right? He was praying, they were on the Mount of Olives, they prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, which they believed to be, you know, they're on the Mount of Olives, and so as you, you look out, this is what you see. The north is, is to your right. And then right in the center, do you see that gold dome? Help, help me out here. Do you see the gold dome? Yeah, okay, cool, cool. That, that's what's called the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim shrine um, that is built on top of what is referred to as the Temple Mount. Now, this is where a lot of the, the religious history and tension comes into this whole region and, and the area there. And if you're not familiar with it, it's really, it's, it's fascinating and, and it's, it's overwhelming to try to figure it all out. But that's, that's a Muslim shrine that sits on top of the Temple Mount. It's believed that it's over this, this rock or this stone that is there that holds great spiritual significance for Muslims, Jews, and Christians alike. In part, it's believed, although there's never been thorough excavation work, archaeological work that's been done on the, the top of this Temple Mount, this is it's where it's believed that the temple would have stood in Jesus' time. The great temple, sometimes called the second temple. It's the one that King Herod built. It was, it was a wonder. And so this was, uh, was that place. If you can go back to that picture for just a minute. Um, if you look where that was before Herod's day, was at part kind of just a hill, kind of a crest of a hill that was there. And when Herod went to build that area, he had his workmen come in and, and not just level it out, but build it up. Basically build a platform on that whole area that they could build on. That platform was about 37 acres of dirt that they moved up there. To put that in perspective, all of our property here on Conant Street is 34 acres. So it was, it was a masterful thing what they did in building that. As you look at that dome, if you go down, just kind of down below it, can you see that wall that kind of runs along there? That's the outside of the old city wall of Jerusalem. That's what's referred to as the eastern wall, just to give you some direction. And then you can see how it kind of curves towards the back of that picture. That's then the southern wall. And, uh, and, and that's, that's significant. Where that dome is 
would have been, if, if you put the temple there in the time of Jesus, that would have been the opening to the, to the temple if you were going to go in, kind of the eastern entrance to the temple in Jesus' time. Why all that's significant is because what you see is the eastern wall, and the next picture will show you the backside of that, and we'll look at this next picture of what's called the western wall, or oftentimes it's referred to as the wailing wall. Have you ever heard of the wailing wall in Judaism? Actually, that's considered a, a, a negative derogatory term. They prefer that you refer to it as the Western Wall because what goes on there is a whole lot more than just wailing. In fact, that spot is a, is a functioning synagogue. You'll see those different kind of white chairs, the plastic chairs that are set out there um, because they had just finished morning prayers just, just after we got there. They had just finished that. That site that you see there, that wall, was the western wall of the temple complex and is considered to be the most sacred, holy site in Judaism. Here's the reason why. We just talked about it. The temple, right back in Jesus' day, you would have gone into it through the east, and then as you progressed through, as you walked through the temple, as you moved west, you moved closer and closer and eventually into the holy of holies which the Jews believed to be the most holy place. So that western wall that we looked at is the most sacred place in Judaism because they believe that in this day and time, that's the closest that you can get to the actual physical presence of God, which they believe to be in the holy of holies of the temple. So that wall is an extraordinary place. It is the most sacred place. It's the most holy place in Judaism today. And so what you see, if, if you look at it, look towards the very back, that, that wall there that's, that's on the back side of that. Do you see that little opening or like a tunnel there? Can you see that? If you walk into that, that takes you into this functioning synagogue. And it was really dark in there. But when we went in there, there was a men's side and a women's side. I didn't go in the women's side for obvious reasons, but if, if you go in the men's side, there were people in there studying the Torah, they were praying, they were debating the scriptures. It was a pretty intense place, and they told us, if you go in there, you can take some pictures, that's fine, and it was just, it was kind of overwhelming to be in there and to see these very devout, mostly Orthodox Jews who were in their study. Clayton went in and took a picture, and he came back out, and he says, Dad, some old guy yelled at me when I took a picture. I said, what did he say? He said, I don't know, it was in Hebrew. But it was extraordinary to be there and to feel that. And it's such a sacred place. And here's why people go there. They go there because they believe God's presence is there. They go there because they want to be close to him. In fact, Jerusalem is so unique. This, this is where Jerusalem is so different from Toledo. How many times have you heard of someone making a pilgrimage to Toledo? But for centuries and centuries, people from all over the world make pilgrimage to the Holy Land. They go to Jerusalem because they believe that when they go there, they experience in some way God's presence in a powerful way. In fact, pilgrimage is a major part of many religions, and it's a major part of Judaism. Not, not just today, but let's take it back to Jesus' time. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus and his family go from their home in Nazareth, and they go to Jerusalem, and that's the place where Jesus gets lost in the temple? Do you remember that? And they leave, and then they have to go back and get him? 
Well, the reason they made that trip is because for a good Jewish family, for a good Jewish person in the first century, but then it was like this in many times in ancient Judaism, there were three times a year when a Jew was expected at, at, at uh, if they lived within that distance of kind of Judea, what was reasonable within Israel, three times a year they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They would go for the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of uh, Passover, and the Feast of Tabernacles. These three very significant, we, we'd call them holidays, they were feasts. So for Jesus' family to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem, it might have taken them up to six days, depending on the route that they would have gone, the, the, the weather, the season, those different things in which they would have moved. It was a commitment for them to go. You would make a pilgrimage. Why would you go? Because you believe that when you got there, you would be experiencing God's presence in a powerful way. What, what I don't have time to unpack now, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it as we get into this series in the future, is how incredibly important it was for the Jewish person, especially in the first century in Jesus' time, to consistently prepare themselves to be in God's presence. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are what is often referred to as Psalms of Ascent. Maybe you've been reading your, your Bible and you've gotten to one of those Psalms. Psalms 120 through 134 are called songs of ascent. And here's the reason why. Because when Jewish pilgrims would go from wherever they lived in Israel and they would go to Jerusalem for one of these feasts, for one of these festivals, for one of these um, sacred days, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, it was believed that as they went on the journey, they would sing these 15 songs, these songs of ascent. They were called songs of ascent because Jerusalem is, is in the mountains and it's up on a mountain. So no matter what direction you came from, north, south, east, west, when you got to Jerusalem, you had to go up to Jerusalem. You had to ascend to the temple. And so they're called songs of ascent. And it was believed that these 15 psalms would have been songs that the people would have sung as they were preparing their hearts to go into the presence of God. And one of these in particular, while I was there, and it wasn't with a, to be, to be quite honest, it wasn't with a sermon in mind. It was just for me personally, one of these songs really resonated with me. We were encouraged to read those passages of scripture. And, and I remember being one night in a hotel room in Jerusalem, just reading this scripture. And have you ever read the, the Bible and have it just kind of jump off the page at you? Do you know what I'm talking about? For some reason, this one did. And I want to I share it with you today. I want to share some of these thoughts with you today. And how significant it is that we work at and that we look to prepare ourselves for the presence of God. Because this is what the Jewish people did in that time. I think it's significant that we do it as well. That these, in the same way that they sang these psalms of ascent. And you can look at any of these 15 psalms in this way. We're only going to look at one. But how do we prepare ourselves for the presence of God? Let me read it to you today. Psalm 131 Beginning with verse 1, Psalm 131, verse 1, David writes, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Here's what I want to give to you today. I want to give you four keys to preparing your heart for the presence of God. I want to give you four keys from this passage of scripture to preparing your heart for the presence of God. Just a few moments ago when, when I asked at the end of that song, how many of you need to experience God's presence in your life today? I, just to be quite honest, I was overwhelmed at how many of you raised your hand. Because we realize that there are times when we just need God's 
I don't know. Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to God, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. He's talking about his face, God's face. He says, God, if your face, if your presence, if your person is not with us, then we don't even want to move forward. Look, there's times when we just, and I would, I would contend all the time, that we need God's presence in our lives. And you've already reflected that. You've already expressed that, your need for God's presence. And I want to encourage you in this and talk about the ways that this happens. See, if you want more of God's presence in your life, you must prepare for his presence. If you want more of God in your life, then at some point, you've got to prepare for his presence. You can't just expect it to happen. Look, for some of you, maybe you've not yet been baptized in water. You saw in the announcement videos, we're going to do a water baptism next week. That's a significant step of preparation for the work that God wants to do in your life. If you've not yet been baptized in water, I'd encourage you, whatever excuse you have, get rid of it and be obedient in that step. You can get more information out in the atrium. Tonight's night of worship is going to be a really cool time of being in God's presence. If you were at the last one, you know just how special it was, how God visited us. It was really, really, really cool. We're going to take time and share in communion tonight, uh, and it's just going to be a really special time. I'd encourage you, 6 o'clock, make it a priority. The, the deal is this. We have to prepare ourselves. We have to look for it if we truly want to experience God's presence in our lives. The reality is this, that expectation leads to preparation. And if I expect God to do something, then I'm going to prepare myself for it. Let's, let's think of it this way. Let's, let's say we're talking about this and we're, we're, talking, about a, we're talking about a date night. Whether, whether, you're, whether you're married or whether you're just dating this individual, there's this time when you go, look, we're going we're gonna to do something special. We're going to go out to dinner. We're going to see a movie. We're going we're gonna to go somewhere. We're going we're gonna to have a date night. If that's the case, then you probably don't just put on an old T-shirt and a pair of sweats and go, ready, baby, let's go, right? No, you probably, you might even take a shower, right? A little deodorant if you're feeling, you know, and you'll say, look, I'm going to prepare myself for this because expectation leads to preparation. It causes us to do that. My, my son Evan has a, has a Steelers jersey that he wears for every game because he believes it makes a difference. So far it has. We'll see today. Why? Because you expect something to happen, so you prepare. If you're going to take a test, if, if you have to work on a term paper, then you, you prepare for that. You work for that because you expect something to happen. The problem is sometimes we go, I just don't feel God in my life or I don't know where God's presence is or I, I don't, he seems so distant from me. And I want to challenge you with this thought. It may be that the reason you are not experiencing God is not the absence of his presence, but the lack of your preparation. It may be that the reason you feel like you're not experiencing God in your life is not the absence of his presence, but it's actually the lack of your preparation. Does the Bible say, okay, so the Bible says that God is always with us, true or false? And the Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that he dwells within us, true or false? So we know that, we know that God is here, but there are those times when we just sense that he's close and those times when we sense that he's far, and I wanna challenge you that sometimes the reality is it's not that God is absent, it's that you've not prepared your heart for what he wants to do, for the way he wants you to encounter his presence. That's why for the ancient Jews, when they were going for these feasts and these festivals, they knew that they couldn't just pull up to the temple and jump out and hope that everything would be okay. No, they, they, they took deliberate steps, these 15 psalms, for instance, to prepare their hearts for the presence of God. 
So let's just look at a few of these thoughts, just one of these Psalms, Psalm 131. What are some keys to preparing your heart for the presence of God? Here's the first one. Look at verse one. Psalm 131 verse one says this. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Here's the first key that I would encourage you with if if you want to experience God's presence in your life. And can I challenge you with this? I think for some of us, tomorrow morning, before you even launch into the day, it might be really good to take these four things and do an evaluation of your own heart. God, if your presence is going to go with me through this day, then I've got to prepare myself for that. Here's number one. The, The first one is humility. David writes to us here about humility. Have you have you ever known anybody arrogant? I don't know. You allowed to say that? I mean, there's just some people. Just, there was this kid that I that I knew when I was growing up, and he was just—I I don't know how to say it—he was just downright arrogant, and he would constantly talk about himself. And here's what I found: that the more he talked about himself, the less other people wanted to talk to him. Do you know what I mean? There's something powerful about humility. Let me give it to you from this verse. I think it takes like four different, uh, four different perspectives. The first, the first is this, that humility affects how I view myself. Humility affects how I view myself. What does David say? He says, my heart is not proud. In, in scripture, especially the Old Testament, the heart is that center of emotion. And at some point, I've got to take my heart. Other, other Bible versions say, my heart is not lifted up. There's times when I've kind of got to settle myself down a little bit. Maybe not be so full of myself. Because the truth is this, and, and I think there's a reality. There's no room for God's presence where there's too much of mine. There's no room for God's presence when there's too much of mine. We've said this before. It's hard to be full of myself and full of the spirit at the same time. And at some point, I've got to allow humility, if I expect to experience God's presence, to help me to say, look, my heart is not proud. I've got to humble myself, which leads to this second thought. Humility not only affects how I view myself, but humility affects how I view others. Humility affects how I view others. What does David say? He says, my heart is not proud. He says, my eyes are not haughty. Your eyes in scripture, that's, that's the way in which you view the world. That's the perspective that you have. And, and uh, another Bible version says it this way, that my eyes are not lifted too high. I'm not, I'm not so forced looking up that I'm looking down on you. And humility will change the way that I view others. Now, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but if you go back and you read 1 John, we spent a lot of time there this last summer. If you look at the letter that John wrote in 1 John, you'll see how he says over and over again that the way that I view you has a direct correlation to the way that I relate to God. So humility will cause me to change the way I view myself. It's gonna cause me to change the way that I view others. And then David says something really interesting here. He says about humility, he says, I do not concern myself with great matters. I do not concern myself with great matters. And I don't think he's saying that we need to dumb down our life. I don't think he's saying that we need to not have aspirations. I think what he's saying is this. Humility affects the way I view the world. It affects the way I view the world around me. And it causes me to see things in a different way. See, this isn't a statement against aspirations when he says I don't concern myself with great matters. It's not a statement against aspirations, but against a preoccupation with greatness. Have you ever known somebody who was so driven that they missed out on reality? And humility causes me to say, God, what really matters? What's really important? How do I truly define success 
and value in my life. Which ultimately, humility is going to change how I see myself and others in the world around me, but ultimately, humility affects the way I view God. Humility affects the way I view God. He says there's some things, God, in this passage, the end of verse 1, he says that are too wonderful for me. Some things, God, that I, I just... Here's the deal. Too many of us go through life constantly trying to figure everything out. Now, look, it's right for us to grow. It's right for us to learn. But at some point, we have to be willing to say, God, I think that's just, it's just too wonderful for me. God, I'll never know why that disaster happened. And I'll never know why you gave me so much favor. Lord, I'll never know on this side of eternity why that unfair thing happened to me. But God, I trust you. I believe in you. And even though I don't understand it, I'll accept that some things are too wonderful for me. The reality is it's hard for you to experience God's presence when you're always telling him how wrong he is. At some point, I have to just say, God, I humble myself before you. God, I repent of some of the things in my life that are just not right. And I realize, God, that there's some things that are just too wonderful for me. How does God view all of this? Two scriptures you might want to write down. Psalm 101 verse 5 says, Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart. Listen to that. Those are the two things we just read about in Psalm 131. This is Psalm 101 5. Here's what David writes. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart. Listen to what God says. I will not tolerate. Do you ever somebody say that to you? I will not tolerate that behavior. God's saying that about Proud heart and haughty eyes. Here's another one. Psalm 138, verse 6. Psalm 138, 6. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. God keeps his distance from the proud. Have you ever been like in a store and you go to go down an aisle and you look down the aisle and you see somebody who, who you really don't want to encounter and so you just walk down the next aisle instead? I've never done it, but you have, right? You have. Because you look and you go, whoa, I'm keeping my distance from that guy. It's one thing in the grocery store. It's another when God's walking down the aisle and says, oh, there's arrogant. I'll keep my distance from them. I don't want God keeping his distance from me. Humility makes all the difference in experience his presence. First key to experience God's presence. How do you prepare? Number one is humility. Let me give you the second one. Look at verse two of Psalm 131. Here's what David writes. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Look at, look at the, the words that he uses at the beginning of that verse again. He says, but I have calmed and quieted myself. Here's the second key if you're going to experience God's presence, if you're going to prepare for that. Number two is quiet. At some point, I need some quiet. Now, I'm not going to take a long time to unpack this because last Sunday you got some incredibly um, practical and powerful teaching on this. When Pastor Bill talked about the, the room in the basement with the orange carpet, right? And that there's these times when what we need in our lives are some simplicity and some silence and some solitude. Because when you get to that place of quiet, it has a tremendous impact on our lives. Have you ever, you ever been, and if you've traveled on a plane, you've, you may have a pair of these, you may have seen some people, they put on those noise-canceling headphones, do you know what I mean? They look like those, those big old headphones that we had back in the 70s. But what they do is they, they, they cover up your ears in a way that it cancels out all the sound around you. 
And they're really a, a, a cool thing. I don't pair of those, but I was on the plane and I, I, just, I just put my earbuds in. At some point, I put my earbuds in and listen to podcasts, listen to some music, and you don't realize everything else that's going on around you. And I was actually, I remember I took my, my, my earbuds out and I was kind of amazed at just how, how loud the noise was around me. I, I had missed the kind of the hum and the noise that the plane's engine was making. I had missed that little baby that was singing so beautifully there in front of me. I had just, I had just blocked it all out because I had, I had canceled that noise out. And there's times in your life, when was the last time you literally even just took a moment to do what the psalmist says here, that you stopped in the midst of the busyness of your school or your work or your family, you found a way to, to just calm and quiet your soul, because it's powerful. So many times the reason we do not experience God's presence is because there's so much chaos and noise around us that we can't even get close enough to know what's really there. And at some point, at some point it's critical. I must shut out from my soul what would drown out God's voice or force out his presence. I've got to shut out from my soul what would drown out his voice or force out his presence. It's real power and quiet. Let me give you a third thing that that David talks about in that same verse, Psalm 131, verse two. We've talked about... um, We've, uh, we've talked about this idea that we need to find humility. We've talked about this idea of quiet. Here's a third thing, Psalm 131, verse two. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Here's a third key that I would give to you, and it's contentment. Third key is contentment. David uses quite an image here. He says, I'm like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I am content. His statement is this. When, it, when a child is weaned, it means it does not come to the mother to nurse anymore. So when that child is with its mother, it's not so much because of what that child is trying to get. It's not for the nourishment. That child is there to be in that mother's presence, to be close to her. And I think his picture there is so powerful that, God, when I come to you just to be in your presence, I'm content It's not a matter of what I'm trying to get from you. It's a matter of being close to you. We should desire God's presence not because of what he can give, but because of who he is. We need to desire God's presence not because of what he can give, but because of who he is. The reality is this is why Jesus uses that image in the Gospels of we come to him as a little child. Not so much, God, what can I get from you? But very clearly, God, I just, I just want to be close to you and who you are. Look, think of this in a very practical sense. How many of you think that if you had won the Powerball this last week, you would have made some new friends? <laughs> right? First of all, don't play the Powerball. That's a whole other sermon. Second of all, if you do, make sure you tithe. <laughs> but don't. But don't do it. But don't do it. But if you do, but don't, okay? But if you had won, if you had won, don't you think people would have come out of the woodwork? You know, I just always wish we'd been closer in high school. You don't even remember my name. It's that thing. Now, this, this may be, I don't know if this is inappropriate for me to mention, but there's these times where you just, when I made the transition from Calvary's children's pastor to lead pastor, there were people that I, that I, that I knew but I didn't really know who all of a sudden wanted to be my best friend because I wasn't just the kid's guy anymore. 
Now, I was the lead guy. I remember it so clearly. The Sunday where the, where the baton kind of got handed off, the moment that sermon, or the service ended, there was this individual who raced to the platform to be the very first person to hug me and shake my hand. What was interesting was that the week before, they wouldn't even give me the time of day. Why? Because now that I had something, they wanted something. How many of us go to God in that way? That the reason we go to God it's not because of who he is. We don't want his presence because of our relationship with him. It's just, God, I need this from you, and God, I need that from you. Those are the times when we talk to him. Not because his presence is so powerful or so life-changing, but because we hope that he can fix us up with something, that he can give us that. At some point, we have to come to him with contentment. And that's key, and we've talked about this before. Don't, don't confuse contentment for complacency. Complacency says, oh, I'll just not do anything. Contentment says, God, I'm going to strive, and I'm going to work, and I'm going to do everything that you've called me to be. But I want to challenge you with this. Oftentimes, the reason that we miss out on God's presence is because we're so much trying to get something from him that we're not open to receive from him. Here's what I've found in my life. I've found that in those times when I'm willing to say, God, I entrust this to you. I'm content, like Paul says in Philippians 4. God, I'm content that my contentment is what often leads to God's blessing in my life. The more I strive, the more I miss out. Here's the reason why. Because it's hard for you to reach and receive at the same time. And if you're working so hard trying to grab, it's hard for your hands to be open to get what God has to give to you. It's really hard to reach and receive at the same time. So at some point, you have to realize that it's my contentment that opens the doors for God's blessing. God, I don't come to you for what you can give me. I come to you for who you are. Fourth thing, real quick, and we've got we've to wrap this up. Psalm 131, verse 3. David writes this. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Here's a fourth key, I think, if you are going to experience God's presence and it's hope. Number four is hope. This was a powerful word for a nation that was constantly in turmoil. Israel knew what it was like to have victory and have defeat, to have victory, to have defeat. And they had this hope that was in the Lord. And for some of you, part of the reason that you wrestle in experiencing God's presence in your life is because you're so focused on that challenge or that issue in the moment that you fail to see the Savior who wants to work in your life. Hope takes my focus off of my situation and puts it onto my Savior. Hope takes my focus off of my situation and puts it onto my Savior. And here's, here's my hope. Is that maybe even tomorrow morning, before you launch into your day, you'll say, God, what I need is your presence. And I can't just expect it to be here if I don't prepare my heart. So Lord, I humble myself, I quiet myself, I'm content with you, God, and I put my hope in you. Here's, here's what happened to me. I had a couple of times uh, when we were gone last week, in fact, it was a week ago today, that about this time, that we were on the Temple Mount. And, and this, was a, this was kind of a powerful moment for me. We were getting off the bus, and our guide said, look, if you, um, if you want to do this when you go up to the Western Wall, and this is tradition, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but one of the things that people do is they take a piece of paper and they'll write a prayer on this paper and then they fold it up and they stuff it into the, the cracks in the wall. And they said, if you want to do that, you're welcome to do that. And so we, we got there. You have to go to the men's or the women's side. And when you go to the men's side, you have to cover your head. So you have to put on a, a little um, 
head covering and, and uh, went up there to the wall. And there's tourists and there's these Orthodox Jews. It was kind of this moment. And I was like, man, I'm going to do that. So I had dug in my backpack and I found, the only paper I could find was this pad of post-it notes. And I thought, if any other people in Israel need a piece of paper, I got them covered, right? You know, this kind of thing. And, uh, and, I, and I wanted to write down a prayer. And I stood there at that wall and I realized, I don't, I don't know what I want to write down. And so I took this moment, and there were these, you know, all these white plastic chairs. I don't think they're very holy. It looked like they came from Sam's. And, and uh, sat, sat down in one of these white plastic chairs. And I just thought, God, what is it that I, what is it that I'm praying for? God, what is it that I want? And in that moment, that passage from Exodus 33 that I referenced earlier came to my mind. Where Moses said, God, if your presence is not with us, don't even send us up from here. And I realized that what I needed in my life more than anything else, more than prosperity, more than health, more than strength, more than favor, what I, what I needed more than just knowing the right things to do or having the right way to do it, God, what I needed was, was your presence. And Lord, if your presence isn't with us, stuff's not even worth going anywhere. So I wrote down this, this prayer. I wrote down that verse, Nexus 33, as best as I could remember. And then I wrote a little prayer for myself and for Rhonda and individually for each of our kids and for our parents. And then I wrote a prayer for you, for the church, that God would help us to thrive in his presence. And I took that piece of paper and uh, I folded it up, you know, kind of small like I could. And I hadn't really wrestled all the way through that humility thing yet because I went over and I thought, I bet I can put this higher than anyone else ever has, right? You know, so, so I reached up as high as I could and I stuck it in this crack up there. And then I, and then I put my, my hand on the wall and I just started to pray. And I thought, I'll just stand here and this is what everybody's doing. I'll just, I'll just pray for a moment. And instead of praying for a moment, I had a moment. I gotta tell you, I sense God's presence in a powerful way. I mean, just, just so real. And, and to the point that, that I realized I'd been standing there a while and I, I didn't want to walk away. There's something powerful about being in his presence. Since then, I've realized something. It wasn't that wall because God's presence is always with us as his people, Amen. But that wall forced me to do what these pilgrims did with humility and quiet. I came to God content with who he was, with my hope in him. And in that moment, I powerfully experienced his presence. Now, I hope that you make it to Israel. I'd love it if, if through the church we could have an opportunity to help as many people as we can to get there because it's just a really cool thing. If it's not on your bucket list, put it on your bucket list and move it towards the top. But if you never make it to Israel you can still experience God's presence on a daily basis. Do you believe that? If you do, then stand with me because I believe he wants us to experience it today. The worship team's gonna come. And I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment before we go any further. And, and um, I want you to process in your own heart the things we just talked about. If God's word spoke to you today, about your need to humble yourself before the Lord. Just, just so we can be honest. Would you just raise your hand real quick? You can raise it and put it right back down. God, I need, I need that humility from you. How about those of you who have said, life's had too much noise and chaos lately, and God, I need to quiet myself before you. If that's you, just raise your hand put it right back down. God, I need to quiet myself. Maybe with uh, 
with heads bowed and eyes closed, there's a moment where you go, God, I've spent far too much time coming to you for what you can give me and not enough just because of who you are. So Lord, today I want contentment to open the door to your blessing. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? God, I just, I just need to be content in front of you. Just this one. I know we didn't spend much time here, but how many of you just need some hope? Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna sing that song we sang just a few moments ago. And I, I don't want you to worry about the clock. I don't want you to worry about the people around you. Maybe even you're here today and you're not even sure you're in a right relationship with God. That you need Jesus in your life in a way maybe you don't even understand. You just know that you're open to receiving that salvation from him. This team leads us in this song again that talks about God's presence. Whatever it is that you need from him today, would you just open up your heart to spend these next few moments in his presence? In fact, if you are open, would you again just lift your hands? posture of receiving God what we need is your presence Holy Spirit you are welcome here would you flood this place fill the atmosphere God let your presence be with us here in our hearts today that's our prayer God in Jesus name take a moment and quiet
heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Calvary, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. And Lord, that's our prayer. Lord, thanks for these moments that we could prepare our hearts. Now as we go out into our week, Lord, we ask that in a powerful way you'd help us to experience day in, day out your presence. Lord, I pray that this song would do more than just kind of resonate in our hearts. Lord, it'd be great if it got stuck in our heads. That it would be our consistent prayer that your presence would be with us. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Ask that you'd send us out with your special favor and your wonderful peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.